Also, a number of, if you have not seen this DVD, I highly recommend it to you. It's called The Essential Church. A family donated numerous copies. They're over on the book table. It's rather long. I think it takes about three hours to uh, watch, but it's well worth it. It's, it chronicles what happened out there uh, at Grace Community Church in California, as well as up in Canada, um, pastors having been put in prison. And then uh, one of the pastors uh, from Scotland narrates what happened with John Knox. So this is, this is nothing really uh, new. This is a long history of how the church uh, has been attacked and what happened during the COVID years. We're very thankful that we live in Texas and our governor gave us some protection um, that a lot of other states did not have. So we were only online for a short time and then uh, we had to have two services. We followed that for a while and then finally we were able to come back as one service when COVID would know that we had some type of spread in the church, um, then we would just uh, go online for a couple of weeks and make sure everything uh, is fine. But that was not so. And this is the story of uh, what happened. I remember standing in St. Giles and looking at that pulpit Mona took a picture of it, and she had it put on canvas. It sits above my study at home. Reminds me of uh, the responsibility to stand for truth. Stand firm. Stand firm. We're going to come to one of the controversial passages this morning, and since last week, um, I wasn't able to fully developed that. It'll be briefly looking at it in its context, and then we're going to talk about three things that are mandates. Deny, take up, and follow. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and then this is a present imperative. Those first two are in a tense. In Greek, tense is not necessarily time. It's talking about aspect. It's talking about you have to make that as a decision. You have to act decisively in your mind and your will to deny yourself. Mark says you, you need to do this daily. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then the next one is a present tense, and then go on following Jesus. If you don't do the first two, you do not have authority to follow Jesus Christ. This is such an important text, and where the controversy is today is that there is a distinction between a believer and a disciple. You can be a believer, but not a disciple of Jesus Christ. So, for example, if you're involved in evangelism and I give out the gospel and someone says, well, um, do I have to give up my sin? 
And some would say, well, you don't address that issue. You just tell them to believe upon Jesus and the sin will fall away later on. I want to submit to you, that is not the gospel. The demand that we see this morning in the text is for everyone, believer and unbeliever, and it's a, it's a crucial one to walk through, and I hope to show you convincingly from the text why that is true. But it's also, aren't you so thankful for the patience of God in our sanctification? We ought to be able to look back and say with John Newton, I'm not what I ought to be yet. And I'm not what I will one day be in heaven at glorification, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. Lord God, have mercy upon us. We're still a sinful people. Pride, arrogance creeps into our hearts and our lives. We think we're thinking correctly at times when we're not. Make us a people of the book. Help us to build our lives upon the firm foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ and his words, his words. Make us doers of the word, not simply hearers. Squash that rebellion in our lives with good rebukes from the Scripture. Help us to be like the wise person when we are rebuked by you and disciplined by you. It is painful, but may it bring forth the peaceful fruits of righteousness. To that end, we commit this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking part two of the first passion prediction. Passion from Latin word meaning suffering. Uh, this is the first explicit, clear prediction that our Lord himself gives that he is going down to Jerusalem. He's going to be mistreated by the religious leaders. He's going to be crucified, and on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. It's explicit in this text, but it will need to be developed over and over and over again because the cultural understanding at that time was, hey, Messiah, reigning king. You know what? Even at the Lord's the final Passover, what we call the Lord's Supper, there it says Jesus was very sorrowful. He's instructing them. And you know what they started arguing about again? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's almost shocking. 
but I, it, it reveals something to me about my own heart. And I submit to you, why were they still thinking that way? Because they're looking for, forward to a ruling and reigning king then, now. <laughs> and Jesus is going to say, no, the disciple is not above his master. If they mistreated me, believe me, they are going to mistreat you. And he has called us not only to believe upon him, but also to suffer together with him. So we, we come to this text. I remind you where we left off. We were up there. Uh, Jesus says, now, up at the base of Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi. There's that little cave, that grotto that some of us visited, and, and that was the half-man, half-goat pan that worshiped, and you have... Uh, the deification of uh, Caesar and re reflected. And so we don't know that Jesus was standing right here. It says he was in the area. He was in the area. And he asked his disciples this question, the 12. And this is the question that continues to resound down through the ages. Who is the Son of Man? Now remember They've already watched Jesus. Remember the four friends? Oh, to have friends like that. It was a, they had a friend who was a paralytic. Remember what they did with him? They carried him into the house where Jesus was teaching. It was so crowded they couldn't get in. And so what'd they do? They went up on the roof. And what'd they do? Removed some of that wooden hardened earth, the beam got, and lowered him down in there to that packed room with some of the Pharisees sitting there and watching as well. I wish we could have a video over it. It's so picturesque. Surely dirt was falling upon people. And he gets lowered down, and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And they go, this is blasphemy. Who has authority to forgive sins? Only God alone. And Jesus says, so that you may know, you may know, no question in your mind that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Hey, get up off of that pallet and take it and go home. And he did. Well, the question then, the same term, the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man? A lot of go out and take the popular poll. John, back from the dead, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Peter, and it's clear because it's addressed to who makes all of you. And Peter, often the mouthpiece for the other disciples, said, you are ha Christos, you're the Christ. The Greek translation of Meshiach, the Messiah, the anointed by God. You are the son of the living God. He is deity. Remember, out there on the Sea of Galilee, Great storm came up. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and the waves are swamping the boat. And hey, master, get up. Don't you care about us? We're perishing. And he got up. He said, oh, you of little faith. And he stood up, and he goes, be stilled. Be still. To use a term like muzzling a little dog. And all of a sudden, the great storm became a great calm. And you remember, they were stunned and they go, 
What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You could go back to the Old Testament and find out that God did that. And so they have it right now. He's the son of the living God. And then we have this great assertion by Jesus himself. Yep, you didn't make this up. You didn't get it because you're smarter than the average person. This is called divine revelation from heaven. My Father who is in heaven, Apocalypto, he's unveiled this. He's revealed this to you. You got it right, Peter. Now, I want to tell you, said Jesus to all the disciples, you're not to go out and tell anybody this. And we go, what? Well, why? Because they still have a great misunderstanding about his mission. And so he's about ready to explain that to them about his mission. So there's, there's a, three letters in Greek, and, it, and it's usually translated, it is necessary, and its words must, it's inevitable. These are divine obligations for Messiah. There's no other way. Remember Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane? If it's possible... See, let this cup pass from me. But it wasn't possible. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. It's absolutely necessary. He has to go down to Jerusalem. He has to suffer many things. He has to be put to death and to be raised on the third day. Now, did Peter and the disciples understand the word put to death? Yes. Did they think the must <laughs> had to take place? No, how can this fit with a ruling and reigning Messiah that we're looking forward to? So, remember, they're headed down from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Jerusalem. But, and, and we're probably within six months of the crucifixion, but it's not a straight line shot. They'll go down. He'll make one trip back up, but he's coming down. And he will repeat this to them over and over and over again. So he began... It says, he began to point out to them what must now occur. He repeated, I'm not going to go through all those texts, just point out some of the responses. Mark 8, 32, he spoke openly, clearly, boldly about his mission. After the transfiguration, they're coming down. Remember, three of them, Peter, James, and John are up there, and they have a preview of the kingdom, and he repeated his passion prediction, and <laughs> they were greatly distressed, but they didn't understand those truths. In the upper room, they began to be sorrowful. It's not I, is it? I'm not going to betray you. And then what did they break out? Another dispute about who is regarded as the greatest. After the upper room, they go out to the Mount of Olives, and on the way up there, Peter says, look, if all fall away, not Peter, uh-huh, I told you I'd be loyal. And it says all the others said the same. Oh, the overconfidence in our own ability and in the flesh. Peter, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. No wonder he went out and wept bitterly. Sin always promises, but it can't produce what it says it will. 
And on the first day of the week, finally, and Peter and, and John, and, and they get to the tomb, and it's empty, and they're starting to, what, what is this, an empty tomb? And this is a striking statement in John 28 and 9. They did not yet, yet understand from Scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. And then we look what happened on the day of Pentecost. What a glorious transformation. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. And so then we see Peter. God has raised him, Jesus, up and made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And you heard that message? Remember what they did? It says they were cut to the heart. What should we do? Pretty easy. You need help from heaven to do it. Repent to your sin and believe upon Jesus Christ and then be baptized as a profession of faith. So here's where we're headed, and they do not understand this right all the way along. Now, they're going to understand the words. They're going to be sorrowful about it, but they can't put that together yet with a suffering Messiah. And then Peter comes along and he gets it. He gets that uh, death, burial, resurrection. Something's going to take place. Jesus said he's going to die. And so Peter summoned him. I take it not far enough away because the 12 are hearing this as well. And he began to rebuke him. Now, he didn't get very far in his rebuke. He got stopped in his tracks. He says, far be it from you, Lord. It's a very strong way in uh, Greek. This shall never happen to you. Now, ooh, may that double negative I, I uh, related last week, but it usually has a different uh, grammatical. This one has future, and it's the strongest way of saying, Lord, may God have mercy upon you. May this never happen to someone uh, like you. What Jesus said was so totally contrary to Peter's understanding of the mission of the Messiah, suffering and death, that he contradicted the Lord. Maybe, maybe he, because he was the acknowledged spokesman for the 12, maybe because Jesus had just said what, what you just recognized is accurate, you got that from heaven. Certainly, I suspect his love for his master evidently entered into this. He didn't want to lose his master. But in the final analysis, it's sinful pride and unknown to Peter and evil influence of Satan in his thought life led him to contradict the Savior. Now, that's, that, that ought to shock us and scare us. Do I know what God has said and do I believe it? You can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. We want to be sincere, but sincere in terms of the truth. Now, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, it's, it's a Greek preposition, and it usually, or after, it means behind, for example. It's right up uh, 
had it in my notes, had it in my brain, and it's very fleeting. Um, but it does mean behind when he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Sometimes after isn't actually incorrect, but behind brings it out a little bit better. In other words, don't get in front of me telling me what to do. Don't get alongside me. And this is a great statement of the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. Would Peter have ever dared to rebuke God if he was not God in the flesh? I mean, just think of Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. But here's something about the humanity, and he's been walking around. He recognizes him as master. He recognizes him as deity, but he's, he, he feels confident to, to say this to him. And Jesus says, no, don't get out front telling me and correcting me. Don't be alongside me as if you're my equal. Back here, behind me, get behind me, follow me, listen to me, obey me. And then he just calls him Satan. Now, to whom was Jesus speaking? The word Satan, Diabolos, just means an adversary. He's the slander. And some say, well, the evil one wasn't, wasn't present here. He's just calling Peter. No, it was. He is speaking to, to Peter. But remember at the end of the temptation accounts, and it says, Satan left him for a more opportune time. And so he is uh, here. I, I, I ran through just a couple of ways, the serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver. He's a murderer. He's a liar from the beginning. He's the demonic opponent, the supernatural evil ruler of the host of darkness. What can Satan do? Well, Satan is demons. There is a hierarchy. Remember the two demons, the two gathering demoniacs, it says they were exceedingly difficult. Somehow they had a, some evidently a little more supernatural power. Mark 4.15, we looked at the parable of the soils, and the word can get sown we go along and we're sowing the seed of the gospel and Satan can come along and snatch it right out of the heart before it takes fruition. Yeah, you don't need to believe that. You don't want to have to follow that. The Bible's just a bunch of myths anyway. Remember what he did to Ananias? So Ananias is looking at there at, at now they're having all things in common, a great work of grace. People have gotten saved. If you have something, I'm going to share it with you. It, it's, this is not communism. This is voluntary. And so Sapphira and Ananias, oh, wow, we'd like a little bit of that acclaim too. And so they didn't have to sell the land and give it, but they did, and they kept back part, but they acted as if they did it all. And what's the rebuke there? Ananias, Satan has filled your heart to lie to God. Second Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, it says, you know what happens if you don't forgive somebody in the body of Christ? It says, Satan 
will get an advantage over you, a verb meaning to exploit you. It goes back to Ephesians. Don't let the sun be angry. Be angry. There's a place for righteous anger. But don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, nor give tapas an opportunity to the devil. You hold on to sinful anger, and you are opening yourself up to all types of demonic satanic influence. Paul says, he hindered me in my apostolic work. And aren't you thankful he did because we wouldn't have that letter to the Thessalonians if that had not happened. And he causes false beliefs to arise, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5. But we should take heart. Remember going back and the, the servant looks at the prophet and he says, we're, we're in trouble here at Dothan. All this army is around us. And he says, Lord, open his eyes and he's able to see that the hills are filled with fiery army of the host with chariots. And he says, greater is he that is with us than he is that is against us. And so John uses that, greater is he that is with us than against us. And think about Peter reflecting back, I'm sure remembering this very event that he told Jesus, no, no, that's not going to happen to you, and uh, may God have mercy upon you. Here's what he says, submit to God, resist him, the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you really believe that? Or do you, like me, cave in sometimes? I don't even think about this. Resist him, Peter says, steadfast in the faith. Remember Martin Luther? I, when I was at uh, one of the Fort Worth Biblical Counseling Conferences and, and uh, Dr. Lance Quinn was there and we're chatting in between sessions and he was wor- walking through some of these things, the attacks of the evil one. I said, hey, what do you think is the best book uh, apart from the Bible written about Satan? He says, this may surprise you. He says, but I think it's Dr. Erwin Lutzer on the serpent in paradise. Now, Dr. Uh, Sproul does not necessarily, he, he even endorsed it in the forward. He says, now, I don't have the same eschatology as Dr. Lutzer has, but I want to tell you, the insights in this book are stunning. We've had it on the bookshelf. I highly encourage you uh, uh, to read that. And in there, he says, he quotes Luther. The devil is God's devil. He thinks, Satan, that he is accomplishing his purposes, but under the sovereignty of God, he is accomplishing God's ultimate purposes. God is sovereign, not the devil. Wonderful book. Encourage you to to pick it up and to read it. Maybe we'll get some more on Uh, the book table. But anyway, this is just kind of a side. We don't want to slide over this text and just go, well, yeah, they they finally got it right down the road at Pentecost when the Spirit came. No, this is very instructive. If Peter one moment can state truth and the next moment be rebuked by Jesus for opposing him, calling him a stumbling block, a scandalon, a a temptation to sin. 
You're not thinking the things of God, Peter. You're thinking the things of man. There it is. Where does it start? Mind. You have to think correctly and then pray for divine enablement for the will to respond correctly. So how do you know? Peter thought he was thinking right. That's one of the great things of Scripture, being a people of the book. All of a sudden, I hit a text, and I go, ooh, that's not what I thought. And it challenged me to change my mind and bring it into conformity. You're going through trials and difficulties, and you go, where's my good God? And all of a sudden, you come across the text like, Trevor reminded us this morning, Joseph to his brothers. What a classic text. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to bring about his people and to save them. So I don't always know, and the, the challenge here is when you don't understand, don't throw the good God of the Bible out the window. Just confess to him, you don't understand. I believe, help my unbelief. So we come to this, this uh, great text here, and we look at that, and now we're going to come to the question of what is a disciple. Now, this is very important because in the Gospels, a disciple may be used in a looser sense of someone who is an unbeliever. And you go, I didn't know that. Well, I hope to show you shortly how that's uh, true. But basically, uh, a disciple, um, discipulus in, in Latin, is, is a student. It's a learner. It's the same thing in Greek. A mathetes. It's from Manthano. I, I learn. So when I come to Latin class, we're, ah, there's one of them over there. Look at, look at that young man with a vest and a tie on. Man, I got to get with it. He's... So if I said to you, and, and Hudson over there as well, so if I said to you, Sawe discipule, what would you say? There it is. They both got it right. So you can't have both. They, I said, hello, student, and they come back, greetings or hello, magister, teacher instructor. So that's what a disciple is, that he recognizes that there is someone whom we call master or teacher, and they're the student. They're learning from them. And just think of the whole background of, of this. Um, The Greek philosophers, people such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, had disciples. Socrates described himself ultimately as the disciple of Homer, the person Socrates regarded as the greatest thinker of all Greek history. Um, uh, Socrates had his own student, his chief disciple. His name was Plato. Plato had his disciples, the chief being Aristotle. Aristotle also had his disciples, the most famous being Alexander the Great. Um, one writes, it's astonishing to think about how drastically the ancient world was shaped by four men, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great. In fact, 
one writes, the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series to Plato. Now, let me bring that down to the first century. The Pharisees said they were disciples of Moses. The Pharisees had their disciples. John the Baptist had his disciples. And so, as we move along in the progression of the Gospels, there are disciples in a loose sense who are followers of Jesus, but not necessarily believers. And I'll give you, there are a number of examples. I'll just give you John 6, 66. Remember that? And so they're following along, and it says they called them disciples. And uh, Jesus is now giving them some vivid uh, examples of what it means to believe. And if you look at that text in John 6 with the bread of life discourse, that's exactly what it's talking about. And some get all sidetracked, and this is about the Lord's Supper. No, that's anachronistic. The Lord's Supper hasn't even been instituted yet in John chapter 6. It's what it means to believe upon Jesus. You eat his flesh and you drink his blood. Not literally. It means you're appropriating him. You're taking him in to you. And some heard this and go, this is a hard saying. And it says they decisive, and it calls them disciples, and they decisively abandoned him and left him. And so what's Peter do? He turned, or Jesus to Peter. He says, Peter, are you going to go away as well? And so he's speaking for all the 12. And Jesus knew his heart, but he's helping Peter to verbalize it. And he says, Master, no, no. You alone have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? So I just, and you could go to the end of uh, John 2 and other places and see sometimes they're a disciple in a wide or a loose sense. And even here, uh, remember with the 12 disciples, there's one who is a professor of faith but not a possessor of faith. He's a hypocrite. He's the one who steals out of the money bag. He's the one who's going to betray uh, Jesus. So is this what we're going to see, these three imperatives? And they are imperatives, and sometimes like a third-person imperative can be translated, let him, but that's, that sounds like permission. But it's more than permission. They are third-person imperatives. In other words, it, when you say um, the first one, let him deny himself, the form in there is he must deny himself. You want to be a follower of Jesus? See, he is clarifying, I'm not like Socrates. I'm not like Plato. I'm not like the Pharisees, the blind leading the blind. I'm not even like John. And yet he was the greatest born among women. What did John do? He pointed to me. None of them ever said, you want to have the forgiveness of sin? Look to the Son of Man. If you don't believe that I am he, you'll die in your sin. Who spoke most about Gehenna, hell, and perishing? Jesus did. And end of the Sermon on the Mount, what's he say? If you don't build your life on my words, the storms are going to come. 
and you can be swept away. Let a wise person do this. Build his life upon the words of Jesus Christ. Hear them and do them. No one else ever said discipleship was like that. So these, these two, first of all, you have to... And he said it to the disciples. Now, this one is so important. It should be the death knell to those who say that Jesus would never say to an unbeliever, take up, examine yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. Jesus would n- never say that. That's, that's bad theology. I go, no, it's not. Look at the text. Now, I want you to see this. Turn over to Mark 8.34. This is the second um, passion prediction. So you know I'm not making it up. I have, been, I have said some things that are wrong. That's why you're a people of the book. And you come back to me and you go, did he really know what he was saying or he just... Okay, here we are. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is not something for just a, a believer. It is for a believer. You've got to do this daily. But what kind of Messiah is he? What kind of master is he? Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake. This is the gospel. Now, is there any contradiction between Paul and Jesus? No, there's not. So you come down. And what is it? Repent and faith in Jesus. So what does Jesus do with the rich young man? Ruler, remember he came to him and uh, he said, what must I do (laughs) to inherit eternity? Well, you know the commandments. And he goes, I've done all those things. He says, okay, I got one thing for you. Go sell all that you have to the poor and come follow me. And what did he do? He went away sorrowful. Now, I'm not God. I don't always know a person's heart, but that's a clear indication. He put his finger right there on his sin. See, we, we have this command, whoever does not love his father or his mother, no, that's not what it says. It says whoever does not hate his father or his mother or his brother or his sister and follow after me cannot be my disciple. Now, clearly, that's comparison. Because we are to love father, mother, brother, and sister. What it's saying is this. If I love my wife more than I love God, you know what I am? I'm an idolater. I have placed the creature above the creator. So the best way to have a good relationship with my wife is this. She's to love God with all her soul, heart, mind, and strength, and me second. I'm to love God with all my soul, heart, mind, and strength, and she's to be second. Above every other person upon planet Earth, I'm to give an exclusive devotion to my wife. I'm to love her like Christ loved the church. And you're going to say, do you do that? 
imperfectly and growing in grace and crying out for divine help. And sometimes it's like this. We're making progress. Oh! <laughs> Mana, would you please forgive me? Like we tell the boys, and they, go, they would say, well, don't do it again when they were small. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that. He just says you're forgiven. And repent and start and then go along a little further, another, another blip. So, yes, we're, we're making progress here. So I'm just saying that without going through all of them, he said to all in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, the invitation, if anyone desires to come behind me, Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes, desires to come after me. So here's, here's why I'm camping on this. When you hear that all you have to do is believe in Jesus, acknowledge certain intellectual truths, death, burial, resurrection, and say, I believe them, and you're on your way to heaven. Not necessarily. You don't come to Jesus at that moment and say, well, th this is really ripe today in evangelicalism. I'm, I'm a same-sex person. Do I have to give that up? And some would say, oh, don't worry about that. Just believe in Jesus. No, this text says, no, this is, this is a red flag. Help them to understand what sin is. Understand what repentance is. You need to repent of your sin, and you need to turn to Jesus. We're not adding extra requirements to the gospel. So just think about this first one. Let him deny. When, oh, I got so excited, I lost my clicker. What did I do with it? It's in my Bible. There it is. Okay. All right. The crucial mandate for discipleship, it's threefold. These are all commands, and there's imperative for a mindset, and one says daily. So you make up, you make this commitment that you're going to have Christ first. So you know what? I get up in the morning, and I want me first. And that's not how the Christian life is, is worked, to please God. So I have to get up in the morning, and I have to remind myself, God is supreme. He's supreme. Lord, help me to act like it this day. Help me to draw upon divine resources. And then I have to take up my cross. Now, they knew what taking up the cross was. They watched crucifixions. Even, even strewn out across the road. I forget how many were, were crucified there as and you, when it says take up your cross, you're, it's not this thing. If you, the patibulum in Latin, it's this piece across your neck. And so once you get there, then this piece, they would fix you to that one. So this one, and you tie your hands there, and you're, you're out bearing. Now, why did Jesus have such difficulty doing it? Because they needed Simon Serenity. He was just flogged and beaten and whipped and bleeding. He's weak. So what does it mean? 
to take up your cross and follow after him. It is not asceticism. You know what asceticism is? It's touch not, taste not, handle not. That's Colossians. All these things, Martin Luther tried that, remember? Before he became a believer, he said, I, I kicked off my blanket at night to try and show God how sincere I was. I fasted, I did this, I did that. And afterwards, he greatly suffered for that physically, all the things that he did. That's asceticism. That's, that's look, 1 Timothy 6 at the end, God has given us all things for enjoyment. Now look at the context of all things, but I'm not gonna be mastered by all things either. So this is not some rigorous life where you go off and go in a cave or become a hermit or a monk, you don't talk to people. You enjoy life under the glory, under God, but there's discipline. So to take up your cross and follow after him, you know what, you're going out there, there's a lot of shame. You're treated like a criminal. Was Jesus innocent? Sure he was. If he wasn't innocent, we're in trouble. We're still dead in our sins. So people are going to treat you like a criminal. They're going to treat you with shame and contempt and disgust and say, and really, when they were first called Christians, if you look at that, it really was a term of, of contempt for those people. And you say, I'll bear the cross. I'll endure the shame, and I'll follow after him. Your cross is uh, Joni Erickson Tada. I read her on this. It was hard. She said, my cross is not my wheelchair. I don't have any choice in that. This, if anyone is willing, you're you are willingly recognizing that you're going to live with the denial of self and a willingness to accept the, the shame that the world's going to heap upon you. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, we don't, we don't all experience. I just read Voice of the Martyrs this week on what, what is happening in India with, with the, trying to make Hindu uh, dominant, going in, burning down churches, beating people. We may not all uh, experience it to that degree, but if you're vocal, and especially if the world knows your name, you're, you're going to be despised. You're, you're going to be told that you're, you're so biased and prejudiced and bigoted and those types of things, and don't react in a sinful way. We're to love our enemies, do good, and pray for them. But you don't cave in on the truth. Somebody asked me for the director's cut. Do you know what the director's cut? That's everything before I skip through pages. You don't want that, believe me. Um, to deny ourselves, deny ourselves with all the sinful thoughts, 
that are contrary to God, our sinful impulses, reject any thought of doing what pleases ourselves rather than what is pleasing to God. Instead of gratifying desires, sinful desires, we reject them, turn away from them, and honor and glorify Christ. No to sin, no to ungodly attitudes, no to unhealthy relationships, no to self-indulgent acquisitions, not even to things that may be good in themselves, but zap our spiritual strength. So it begins this way with salvation. How do you deny yourself in terms of salvation? No merit of my own, that's for sure. So what's, what's the natural tendency? Jeremiah 17, 10. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. So what's the heart? The mind tell you, I'm not that bad. Yeah, I sin occasionally, but I can always find people worse than I am. No, you look at yourself. You look, you look at the demands of Scripture, and Jesus says this, Come to me. Come to me. You come to him, he will by no means cast you out. But you have to come to him not as manipulating him on your terms, but you come to him on his terms, and he will forgive you of your sin. Whew, nothing better than that. And then that present imperative, you go on following Jesus. And then those, the, the paradox, losing one's life for Christ but finding life. Whoever would save his life, that suke there, sometimes it, 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 you look at Alexa, it doesn't always mean the same thing. Here in context, it means life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in recompense in return for his soul? The day is coming. It's coming. I can't tell you when. I'm not God. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know how long you're going to live. But the day is coming when each one of us will have to give an account for ourselves before God. I can't answer for my sons, my grandchildren. They can't answer for me. Each person answers for himself. And the question is, what, whom do you say the Son of Man is? You go, well, he's, he's fire insurance. No, he's not. Do you have this mindset? You deny yourself. You deny your own ability. You deny your own merit. And you say, to him alone I flee. Jesus alone, I, I, I want to follow you. Shame, reproach, fine, I'm trusting Christ. And then that makes a person a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. You can be an immature disciple. You can even be a rebellious disciple. But you cannot be a true disciple as Acts begins to spell out of what it means to be a disciple Jesus is clarifying here. I'm not like Socrates. I'm not like Plato. I'm not like the Pharisees. I'm not even like John. I have an exclusive claim, and you owe me number one. And how great is it that he will forgive us of our sin? 
someone as well said, does the church know its commission? Just, just quickly, a little applied theology. What is a disciple of Christ? It's to live by faith in Christ and the gospel. Romans 1.17, it's to repent of sin and to trust Christ. It's to deny any ability of my own to save or to sanctify, to boast only in the cross and the gospel and to flee all pride and self-achievement. It's to train myself for godliness. I have a responsibility. Take your human responsibilities seriously, to hold him supreme over every other human person, to take up my cross, submit to him, be willing to endure shame and disgrace heaped upon us from a hostile world, to hate sin and love holiness, to serve and love Christ's church with all her imperfections. There are other churches. I'm thankful for every church that preaches the gospel. But I want to tell you, you need to be involved somewhere because a good local church is vital for your spiritual health. It's not an option. And then to love the lost and the nations than to have a passion for gospel advance. So I ask myself as I ask you, if you're here without Christ, you need to repent to your sin and believe upon him. And if you ask the question, can I hold on to this sin or that sin or this sin and just believe upon Jesus, not in a saving way? Now, you may not understand all the implications of discipleship, but don't, you don't come to Jesus and say, I, uh, you know, uh, try this one. Do I have to stop being an adulterer? Do I have to stop being a thief? Do I have to stop being XX? Just, just read that. It's warned. Stop being deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's possible to commit those sins, some of those sins as, as a believer, but the shame, the disgrace, the taste of it is different. I remember when I became a believer, to the best I could remember, some things I, I, I just stole on a dare in high school. You know, we went into a, a, a store, and my friend was with me, and he goes, you're chicken. Just steal some socks. So I'm going to show how, how cool I am. And I stuck some socks underneath my shirt, and we walked out, and we never got caught. I put them in my drawer at home. They weren't even my size. And my mother goes, where'd you get those socks? Now I have to cover up my sin with a lie. I told her I bought them. She knew I didn't buy them. But when you become a believer and those things come back, they're horrible. And so I went back to that place. I wrote up my testimony in there. I put some money in there. I told him what I had done, and I asked for forgiveness. Manager didn't know me. It didn't matter. I wanted to be right with God. That's the grace of God that he changes us and is making us more like Jesus Christ. And one day, he's going to get us home. He's going to get us home. Finish well.